Welcome to the podcast of Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more information about our church and for more messages, visit sovgracechurch.ca. you to open your Bibles to John chapter 1 as we continue our Advent series in John chapter 1 called The Word Became Flesh. The birth of Jesus Christ has been called the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation. That's from J.I. Packer's classic book, Knowing God. Packer also calls it the supreme mystery And another theologian calls it God's greatest wonder. It is greater than the crucifixion of Christ. It is greater than the resurrection of Christ. It is greater than the ascension of Christ. The incarnation of Christ is what makes those other doctrines as marvelous and beautiful as they are. Christmas reveals to us a God who not only saves us, but who saves as one of us. The Dutch theologian Herman Bavink tried to capture this when he wrote, it is completely incomprehensible to us how God can reveal himself and to some extent make himself known in created beings. Eternity in time, immensity in space, infinity in the finite, immutability in change, being in becoming, the all, as it were, in that which is nothing. This mystery cannot be comprehended. It can only be gratefully acknowledged. Well, that is what we are going to do today as we look at John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. We are going to try to comprehend the mystery of the incarnation while recognizing that at some point, it must simply give way to grateful acknowledgement. Understanding must simply give way to worship. And that should be our aim as we approach the celebration of Christmas. Our aim as Christians is not to buy the right presents. It's not to plan the right family celebrations. It's not spreading Christmas cheer. Our aim Ultimately, we we do those things with joy, but ultimately as believers, the burning desire of our hearts is to grow in our awe and wonder at the incarnation of Christ, that Christ, the eternal Son of God, became man. And his first throne was a manger, a feeding trough for animals. God became man so that man could be reconciled to God. So let us peer into this mystery once again and see what our God has done to save us. I'll be reading John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. This is the word of the Lord. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as if the only son from the father full of grace and truth. 
John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The title of this sermon is The Supreme Mystery of Christmas. The Supreme Mystery of Christmas. We're going to have three points today. First, the sonship of the word. Second, the incarnation of the word. And third, the glory of the word. First, the sonship of the word. Now, what we have seen so far in John chapter 1 is that John has given Jesus a number of titles. He has called him the life in verse 4. He has called him the light in multiple verses. And most importantly, he has called Jesus the word in verse 1. John now returns to that title, calling Jesus the word in verse 14, when he writes, the word became flesh. But what I want to turn our attention to right now is a new title that John gives to Jesus a little later on in verse 14, when he calls him the only son from the father. He calls him the only son from the father. Now, we don't usually talk about Greek words in detail here at Sovereign Grace, but we're going to do that today because this word is important for what we will be studying this morning. Behind this title, only son, is the Greek word monogenes. Monogenes. And John uses that word five times in his writings to describe Jesus. Twice in John chapter 1, twice in John chapter 3, and once in 1 John chapter 4. Now the most famous use of this word monogenes is used in John 3 verse 16, which I think most of us would know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, monogenes, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now if you have a, a physical Bible uh, in the ESV, you may see that there is a footnote above uh, the word only son. And the footnote says that this word can also be translated as only one or unique one. Only one or unique one because the word son is not actually in the Greek. The Greek only says that he is the monogenes parapatros, the only one of the father. The translators of the ESV and most modern translations, English translations of the Bible, they insert the word son. Because if God is called the father, then it seems appropriate to call his only one his son. But if you are familiar with older translations of the English Bible, you know that the word used to be translated differently. For example, in the King James Version, John 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Same Greek word, of course, in the manuscripts, monogenes, but translated as only begotten son. Now, that may seem like a minor difference, but its implications are massive. Because if monogenes only means only one, God's unique one, then it's a statement merely about Jesus' unique status. It's like Genesis chapter 22, 
when God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and he says, sacrifice your son, your only son whom you love. Of course, he didn't end up doing that. It was a, a test. But if, if, if monogonese only means only one, it speaks to Jesus' unique status as the father's only son. But if it means only begotten, then it speaks not only to his unique status, but to his divine origins, to his divine origins. Let me try to explain. Now, we usually come across the word begotten in English in genealogies. Yes, the genealogies in the Bible are relevant to us. This person begat this person, and this person was begotten from that person. It speaks of who fathered whom. And so Solomon was begotten of David, and David was begotten of Jesse, and so on. So if monogonese means only begotten, then John is telling us that Jesus was begotten of the Father. Somehow, in some mysterious way, it is the Father who gives life to the Son. Now that is the translation that has dominated Christian interpretation throughout church history. And it is the one that I prefer as well. We need to be careful here because there are obvious differences between how humans beget and how God begets. God doesn't need a partner to conceive the son because the son has no beginning. We saw that in John chapter 1, verse 1. He was in the beginning with God. Sorry, that's, that's verse 2. He has no beginning because he was in the beginning. For us to say that Jesus had a beginning that when God begot him, when he was begotten of the Father, he came to exist, is actually to fall into the Arian controversy, the Arian heresy in the fourth century. We want to avoid that. The son has no beginning, though he is begotten. When a human child is begotten, a new person is created. Something that didn't exist comes into existence. Well, that's not true of Jesus. He was in the beginning, with God, as God. The Apostle John records John the Baptist alluding to this in verse 15 when he says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he, speaking of Jesus, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now the question is, how can that be? Because John was born before Jesus. So how can John say that Jesus was before me? John can say this because he knew that Jesus didn't come into existence when he was conceived and when he was born. He always existed with God. Augustine put it this way hundreds and hundreds of years ago. The Father bestows being on the Son without any beginning in time. Now, the fancy, the fancy phrase that the theologians use for this is they call it the eternal generation of the Son. The eternal generation of the Son. The Father generates the Son from eternity. The Son is begotten of the Father and therefore generated from the Father, but it's not a generation that began at a specific point in time. It is a generation that has always existed. And that is why, as we recited in the Nicene Creed and as we sang in the old Christmas carol, uh, O come all ye faithful, 
we read these words, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, speaking to his eternal nature. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. That is responding to the Arian controversy. He is begotten, but not a created being of the same essence as the Father. Jesus is begotten, not made. He is generated from the Father, but not created by the Father because he's not a created being. He's begotten from the Father from eternity. Now, you may be wondering, well, why does any of this matter? I mean, who uses the word begotten? I mean, I'm here because I'm depressed or I'm sad and I need you to lift me up, pastor. I don't need to hear about all this talk about the Nicene Creed. Just give me something to pick me up so I have strength for the rest of this week. Well, if you're wondering why this matters, let me ask you this question. Can we truly love God if we do not truly know God? Can we truly love God if we do not truly know God? Imagine my wife telling me that she loves me because I have blonde hair, blue eyes, and I'm six feet tall. I mean, I would respond to her and say, honey, I'm sorry, you got the wrong man. You do not truly love me because you do not truly know me. Well, my friends, it's the same with God. We, we can't say that we truly love God if we don't truly know God. And we can't truly know God unless we know him as a trinity. Three persons in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, coexisting as one God. That is how he has revealed himself to us in his word. He, he tells us in his word by revealing himself as three persons in one that this is how I want you to know me. This is how I want you to love me. It is a mystery. The Trinity is a mystery. And yet the eternal generation of the Son takes us one step closer to understanding this mystery. It doesn't tell us everything about the Trinity. We're not talking at all about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. We're to, we look at different texts in the Bible to, to understand that. But it does help us understand how the Father and the Son are distinct from one another and yet equal to one another. If the Father begets and the Son is begotten, then we have a basis for understanding how they are distinct persons. The, the, when we call the Father the Father and we call the Son the Son, they are not just arbitrary titles. They actually speak to something about their relationship with one another. The Father and the Son, they don't morph into one another depending on the time and the season. God doesn't just choose to express himself as Father in one context and then to express himself as Son in another context. They're distinct from one another. The Father is the Father and not the Son. The Son is the Son and not the Father. The Father begets but is not begotten. The Son is begotten but does not beget. And yet both are fully God, eternal, unchanging, and divine of one essence, coexisting in one God in perfect unity and love. 
Now we saw last Sunday, verse 12, that those who receive Christ and believe in his name are given the right to become the children of God. God has the only begotten son, but through his work on the cross in his life, death, and resurrection, now he has many children. And Jesus has brought many sons to glory. We can join with Jesus in calling God our father. But our status as God's children is different from Christ's status as God's son. Christ is the only begotten. We are not begotten. I mean, Donald MacLeod, the Scottish theologian, puts it simply. Christ is son by nature. Human beings only by adoption. The, the sonship of Christ is of an entirely different of an entirely different order than ours. And that's why the Bible reserves certain language for Jesus that is not true of us. Jesus is described as the, the perfect radiance from the Father. And we are not. The Bible calls Jesus the exact imprint of his nature. We are not. Jesus is called the image of God. And we are not. We are made in the image of God, but only Christ is the image of God. Christ is son by nature. We are children only by adoption. But here's the good news. Here is the pastoral application. This is why this matters. This is how this makes, this, this turns this doctrine into a daily reality for us to enjoy. We can be absolutely confident that God will indeed relate to us as our father. Because he has always been a father. There was never a point in time. Listen, there has never been a time, even before the creation of the world, before the, the dawning of the stars, there was never a point in time when God was not a father. Fatherhood is in his nature. And that means that we do not just call God Father as an empty title. We call God Father to reflect the reality of who he is and who he always has been and who he always will be. Now we are probing the infinite depths of the mystery of God's nature. I mean, what does it mean for the son to be generated from the father, begotten, not made beyond what we've already said? Most responsible Bible-centered theologians say, we, we really can't know much else than that. But now we need to probe even deeper as we consider that the only begotten Son of the Father entered time and creation and became the son of a young woman named Mary in a little town called Bethlehem. And this leads to our second point, the incarnation of the Word. Now, incarnation, we need to recognize, is one of those words that we use often in churches and in Christian theology that actually isn't in the Bible. But that's okay, so long as the word and how we understand it and define it reflects biblical realities. The same is is true of the word Trinity, not in the Bible, and yet reflects Orthodox Christianity. The same is true of the word church membership, uh, that's, that, that concept is in the Bible, but that phrase is not in the Bible per se. 
And incarnation is another one of those words. You won't find the word in the Bible, but it captures the reality in verse 14 that the word became flesh. You can remember the meaning of incarnation by taking the middle part of the word carn. carn uh, think about carnal. If something is carnal, then it is of the flesh. So incarnation is like the enfleshment of Christ. Christ's incarnation refers to Christ's enfleshment. Christ was incarnated when he took on flesh as the human son of Mary. Now we need to pause and ask the question, in light of the only begotten nature of the son, in the beginning, with God, as God, we need to ask the question, how could this be? How could the word become flesh? How is the incarnation possible? How could the one who was in the beginning and who has no beginning suddenly have a beginning? The one who was begotten and not made was created and conceived. He, he grew inside Mary's womb, one cell at a time. As the Holy Spirit overshadowed her in the power of the Almighty, just as the Holy Spirit had hovered over the faces of the waters at the beginning of time as God created. How could that be? Now, we may be tempted to think that this was only possible because Jesus somehow gave up his divinity. When he became man, he ceased to be God. And that reflects other heresies. That is not orthodox Christianity, and that's not what our text says. Verse 14 doesn't say that the word ceased to be the word. It says the word became flesh. Jesus didn't cease being God when he became man. He, he added humanity to himself without, without subtracting deity from himself. The word was still God when he became flesh. The only difference was that now he had two natures in one person. One nature fully God and one nature fully man. But though he was God, he did not appear to us as God. He appeared to us as a man. He appeared to us as one of us. John intentionally uses the word flesh. The word became flesh to communicate that he was just like us. He, he didn't come as a sort of spiritual man with a spiritual body. He came in the flesh with human organs and human needs. He had a heart and he had lungs. He breathed the same air that we breathe. He had calluses on his hands from working in the wood shop with his father. He ate food because he was hungry. He fell asleep because he was tired. He even bled from his wounds because he could die. And that, my friends, is ultimately why the word became flesh. The word became flesh so that his flesh could be torn. He took on a body so that his body could be broken on the cross for our sins. Here's the problem that we face in our salvation. God can't die. And yet we need a God who can die for our sins if we are to be saved. And God solved that problem in the incarnation of his son when the word became flesh so that 
one who was fully God and fully man, could bear the price for our sins. Jesus became like us in every respect except one. Jesus was without sin. He was tempted in every way, like we are tempted, but not once did he give in to a single one of those temptations, not even for a single moment. He overcame every temptation as the second Adam. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam did not. And he overcame the temptations, not only in the wilderness, but throughout his life. And that is what qualified him to die on our behalf. If, if he had sinned, then he would have to die to pay the penalty of his own sins because the wages of sin is death. But because he never sinned, he could die for our sins and bear our penalty on the cross. And when he did, Jesus showed us what God is really like. He, he showed us the fullness of the glory of God. And this leads to our final point, the glory of the word. Verse 14 says that the word became flesh and, and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. The Bible scholar Don Carson points out that the word for dwelt here literally means pitched his tent. The word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. It actually has the same root as the word used for the great tent in the Old Testament. The, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible uses that word for the tabernacle. The, the mobile tent that symbolized the presence of God and that manifested the glory of God as Israel journeyed towards the promised land. So when John wrote, the word became flesh and tabernacled with us, the readers would have understood that this is where God's presence was now manifested. God's presence was no longer manifested in a place, but in a person, in Jesus Christ, as he reveals the fullness of the glory of God and manifests the presence of God himself. Jesus is the full revelation of God. And he said that in John chapter 14 when he said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. You could say it this way. Jesus made it possible for the word of God to not only be heard, but seen. John says in verse 14 that we have seen his glory. We, with our physical eyes, we have seen his glory. This is astounding because you, you remember the well-known story in the Old Testament about seeing the glory of God. In Exodus chapter 33, when, when Moses has received the law of God, he is communing with God, he is speaking to him and he says, please show me your glory. Moses wanted what John would experience thousands of years later. He wanted what John would experience when he said, we have seen his glory. But God replied, you cannot see my face. You cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. 
God didn't let Moses see his glory, but he did let Moses hear his glory. I mean, the word was proclaimed. God proclaimed his name to Moses in Exodus 34, verse 6, when it says, the Lord, this is the Lord proclaiming his own name, his own word, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is the glory that God revealed to Moses. He is the God who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, how is this relevant? Let me explain. There are glories here. The word for steadfast love, as we have often reflected on here at Sovereign Grace, is hesed. Hesed, God's covenantal love. The, the, the covenant that he makes with his undeserving people that endures throughout their idolatry and unfaithfulness. It is the grace of God to his covenant people. His commitment to them, regardless of their lack of commitment to him. The word for faithfulness is emet, which can also be translated as truthfulness. Truthfulness. When the Bible says that God is faithful, I mean, that's how the translators chose to translate it. It really does mean the same thing. It's telling us that God is true to his word. God always says the truth, and therefore what he says he will do, and that means he's faithful. So, what we see is that the God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness is also the God who is abounding in grace and truth. Do you see? He is abounding in grace and truth. And here in the Gospel of John, John tells us that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Twice. Verse 14, verse 17. He is the one who brought grace and truth in its fullness. John is saying that the word, John is saying that the God who refused to show the glory of his grace and truth to Moses has now shown the glory of that grace and truth to us in Christ. The word proclaimed is now the word who became flesh. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus has made the invisible God visible. He has made the inaccessible, consuming, blazing power of the glory of God accessible to sinners like us so that we could not only see God's glory and live, but we could see God's glory and be born again. That the glory that once threatened to destroy us is now the source of eternal life by grace. But not all see this glory. Not all see this glory because not all are born again. In order to see this glory, we need to receive grace. That's the point of verse 16. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. That is the basis of our adoption through faith in Christ. It is grace, grace alone, not merit, not works, not personal righteousness, but the grace of God that turns those who are spiritually dead into the living children of God. 
But what does this phrase mean in verse 16 when it says grace upon grace? We've all received grace upon grace. Some people, some commentators think it means grace that is layered upon grace, like the waves of an ocean, waves upon waves, watching over us to describe the, the superabundant provision of God's grace. As poetic and powerful as that image is, and though it, it is true, that's probably not what this phrase means. Again, if you have a physical ESV Bible, you'll notice the footnote. It says that the phrase can also be translated as grace in place of grace. Or as Don Carson translated, translates it, grace instead of grace. It is one grace taking the place of another grace. And that makes more sense in light of where John goes next in verse 17 when he says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what John is saying is that the law through Moses gave us one grace, but Jesus came to give us another grace, a grace in place of grace. Because listen, as wonderful as the law of God is to us, apart from the law, we would have no knowledge of sin. Apart from the law, we would not know the holy character of God. Apart from the law, we would not know how God wants us to order our society in a way that leads to human flourishing. There is grace in the law. But however much grace there is in the law, the law cannot change our hearts. The law shows us where we must go, but it gives us no power to get there. Only the one who is full of grace and truth, who replaced that grace with a greater grace, could enable us to live according to God's will. Now, our text ends with verse 18, which really summarizes everything we've seen so far, a masterful summary statement. John writes, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. There is the second use of this word that we've been studying, monogenes, the only begotten. But now, notice, what John does is he calls Jesus the, the monogenes theos, the only begotten God. He is the one who has made God known. The only begotten God making God known. This is beyond comprehension. It is what we saw in John chapter 1, verse 1, when it said the word was with God and therefore distinct and the word was God and therefore equal. Jesus is called the only begotten God because he is equal and yet he is the one who makes God known because he is distinct. The son is distinct from the father but equal. He is generated from the father but he is not, he is no less equal to the father. He is God of God, light of light, true God of true God. And that is what makes Jesus fully qualified to make the Father 
known. He is the one who is at the Father's side. Literally, the one who is in the Father's bosom. And therefore, he can show us what the Father is really like, what the Father's love is really like through his sacrifice on the cross. These truths about the sonship of the word, the incarnation of the word, and the glory of the word ought to evoke many things from us, but let me just highlight two, two responses from us. The first response to the glories of this supreme mystery is that we should respond in awe and wonder at the Father's love for the Son. The Father loves the Son because only the Son is begotten from the Father. The Father has no other. There is only one who is eternally begotten from the Father. They they have always been together. Even before the dawn of time, even before, to borrow Job's language, before the morning stars sang together and all the angels of God sang for joy, there they were, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the Father loved the Son. And the Son loved the Father. This is why it is right for us to worship Jesus. If Jesus were only a created being, begotten and made, then worshiping Jesus would be idolatry. It would be a betrayal of the one who created us as we worship a created being. But since Jesus is the only begotten of the Father, our our love for Jesus merely reflects the pure and perfect love that the Father has for his own Son. Worshiping Jesus isn't idolatry. In fact, the opposite is true. To fail to worship Jesus is idolatry. Because if we fail to worship Jesus... We fail to worship God as he has revealed himself in the person of his son. God's glory has been manifested in the son. So if we reject the son, we we reject God. Jesus said it himself in John chapter 5. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. My friends, believing in God is not enough. Attending church is not enough. God calls us to honor his son because it is the son who makes God known. So let me ask you, are you honoring the son today? Are you honoring the son? Do you study the life and teaching of the son in his word? Do you obey the Son's commands? When Jesus gave us a new commandment for his disciples to love one another, to form a new humanity, a new community of Gentiles and Jews, rich and poor, slaves and free, for them to love one another, do you obey that command? Are your highest affections, your greatest desires for more of the Son? None of of us will honor the Son perfectly in this lifetime. But those who truly 
have received Christ, believed in his name, have become the children of God who belong to Christ, they will increasingly honor him with their lives and with their affections until we stand in his glorious presence and behold his glory without end. We should respond to these truths with awe and wonder at the Father's love for his Son and respond with awe and wonder at the glory of the Son as we reflect the Father's love for his own Son. The second response is this. We should respond to these truths with awe and wonder at God's love for us. God's love for us. We have considered in detail the Father's love for his Son. And yet the Father gave his Son for us. He gave his Son for sinners, rebels, enemies of God, like us. And the Son went willingly, sent from the Father to reveal the glory of the Father to die on the cross for our sins, to die a wretched, painful death for us. Donald McLeod put it this way, and we'll end with this. God could not have made a greater sacrifice. His love is astonishing precisely because at this point he put the world before his son. The statement God gave the world for his son would evoke no wonder. The statement God gave his son for the world borders on the incredible. My friends, what we celebrate at Christmas borders on the incredible. God didn't give the world for his son, though he would have been right to do that. God gave his son for the world. And this is the supreme mystery. This is God's greatest wonder. And this is why we respond to what God has done for us in Jesus with awe, worship, and happy obedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what mysteries we have probed this morning. Realities that perhaps some of us have never thought of and yet are contained within your word. How we long to know you that we may truly love you. And in loving you, we would worship and obey you. We ask, Father, that this Christmas, the supreme mystery would be at the forefront of our minds and our hearts as we worship you and as we worship your Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us this Christmas, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.